James 5, verses 7 to 20. Patience in suffering. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or will you or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed to those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Advent, here we are, the last Sunday of Advent. And Advent means we're waiting. It means to wait. And yes, it means that we're waiting for God to come again in his son, Jesus Christ. It'll be really different on that day from the last time that we saw him. The last time we saw him, his face was uh, bruised and bloodied. And his body uh, bore the scars of his crucifixion. But the next time we see him, uh, his face will be more brilliant than the sun. The last time we saw him, uh, he was carrying a cross, but the next time we see him, he'll be carried by clouds. Last time we saw him, he stood silent before corrupt judges, the lamb and sacrifice of God to be slaughtered for the sins of the world. And the next time we we see him, he will be coming as the king of God, the ruler and just judge Of all. And Advent is to wait well for that, says James. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. There is one thing that can both help and hinder our waiting. And that, James says, is our words. First of all, he gives examples of how words can hinder our waiting in verse 9 there, if you've got the, the, the text open in front of you. Grumbling, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's near. Grumbling against the people, amongst the people of God. That, that's a reference back to the book of Numbers where the people of God grumbled in the wilderness while they were waiting to enter the promised land. And they were denied entry to the promised land. Their grumbling meant that they'd given up enduring, patiently waiting for God's work to show. Another way we can hinder our waiting with our words is by the misuse of oaths, by, by clever lying. So James says that it's there in verse 12. Uh, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear by heaven or earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Uh, but oaths in James' time were, were like contracts with loopholes, fine print in a font that you couldn't really read, even with your new glasses. And it was words like this, were a sign of the lack of integrity that Job and the prophets, James says, showed. Job, Job and the prophets had integrity. They, they weren't going to take shortcuts. They weren't, weren't looking for the loopholes. They weren't relying on some dodgy fine print. They would wait. They were going to endure. They're going to persevere until God's ways come out. So there's two ways that words can hinder our waiting. Grumbling and clever lying. But then he says there's ways that words can help our waiting. In verse 13 to 16, he talks about words of prayer. He talks about words, songs of praise, prayers of healing and confession and reconciliation. He talks about words of mission and evangelism that turn sinners from the errors of their way. These are the words that actually help our waiting. The question is, what are we waiting for? What are we enduring for? What are we being patient for? And there are three things here, he says, we're waiting for. God. Yes, Advent is about preparing ourselves to receive the final answer to every righteous prayer. It's about preparing to receive our just judge who will bring with him eternal health. God will complete his work in this world. We're waiting for God. But we're also waiting for ourselves, James says, to grow in maturity. In other words, we're waiting for God's work in us to be completed. And we're also waiting for others. We're waiting, he says, to bear fruit, for God to bear fruit in them. We're waiting for God's work in others. Now, James is ending his letter where he began it. You remember he said this back in in chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And, And let your perseverance 
finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Consider it pure joy. (laughs) Count it all joy, literally, that our trials and sufferings under Christ can produce endurance, perseverance, patience, that they can produce waiting in us. And James says it is the waiting that produces the fruit of maturity in our lives. Now, we don't expect that, do we? And quite frankly, we don't want that. It's the opposite, really, of what we we want because we see waiting as a test of our trust in God. We, 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 frankly, I want, I want the prayers answered now, thank you very much. The problems sorted now. The healing given now. But James says, no, it's the waiting that actually produces in us the fruit. And he uses the illustration of a farmer who's waiting through hard seasons for trees and animals to mature, uh, to make possible a return from the land. And his point is that God expects our maturity to take time. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Everywhere he assumes in in the Gospels, it'll be a while before he came back again. And there's grace in this. It will require patience with ourselves to grow as mature disciples of Christ. And God expects fruit in other people's lives. He expects that's also going to take some time. And and Peter warns us in in his his letter that God is not slow in answering his promises. Someone counts slowness, but he's patient with us, waiting that people would turn and repent, would grow in him. God expects the fruit in our lives, the fruit in other people's lives, to take time, and we're not to judge the work of God in other lives or even in our own. And then James gives us two examples of what waiting looks like when you live it out. And again, he's a colourful preacher. He gives us completely unexpected answers. So they're here, or examples. In verse 10, he says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience and suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, that word blessed. That's the same uh, word that we learned about recently from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and so forth. We looked at what what are called the Beatitudes at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes in our translations, we translate that word blessed as happy. And Jesus uses, uses it in the sense of someone who is approved, someone who uh, here, who, whom God approves of. So it's worthwhile asking, in what sense are the lives of the prophets and the life of Job blessed or happy or approved? Because when I read my Bible, I find that Moses fled in failure from Egypt. He was in exile for 40 years, and at one point he even despaired of his life because his workload was overwhelming, and he's held back from entering the promised land because he once lost his temper with the difficult Israelites. 
Or when I read Jeremiah, uh, I read that he was hunted uh, by the men of his hometown. Uh, He was ignored as a pain in the behind by the people in power. His life is threatened. Uh, He was deported. And tradition says he was murdered in exile. Or, or, Or I read Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of the ancient world's literary geniuses, a major prophet. One of the clearest prophecies, or some of the clearest prophecies about the political and spiritual future of the world, we owe to him. Yet tradition says he was caught and captured and sawn in two. Daniel, a brilliant, gifted administrator, judge, deported, undermined, lion's dens, we know all about that, gets ill from his own visions that God gives him. Ezekiel, long-term, deep grief, Hosea, humiliating and very public marriage breakdown, which God turns into a teaching point. Thank you for that one, Lord. For everyone else to learn from. Job, lost his business, lost his wealth, lost his children, lost his health, but he did not lose his less than helpful wife who was left alive to advise him to curse God and die. I suspect that was probably a low point in their relationship. But how are these people blessed? How are they happy, as James says they are? Now, so interesting this, because for us to be blessed or happy means to have a good day. It means to sail through with minimal troubles. But in the ancient world, you you never assessed if a person's life was blessed or happy until after that life was over. Do you know why? Because you see, they knew, the ancients knew, you could be born in a hard time. You could be born in a hard place. You may have suffered many setbacks. You may have known more than your fair share of struggles. But what defined a blessed life in the ancient world was not a life without trouble. Who has that? But a life that kept its integrity and courage and hope in the face of struggle. Did they keep growing as human beings? This is what the ancients asked. Did they continue to strive for their purpose? Did they leave something behind for the benefit of other people so that other people could could grow and and use that and build upon that? Did they show courage? Did they stay the course? Did they honour their word? Did they keep their faith? Now, we are obsessed, aren't we, with... uh, living a successful life or a comfortable life, but the ancients realised that whether we succeed or fail often depends on circumstances that, frankly, are outside of our control. So if you really want to assess a person's character, they argued, and worth, you need to ask a very different question. Did they stay the course regardless of what happened to them? If the answer was yes then the ancients taught their children this is what a truly blessed life, a happy life, an approved life looks like. Not a life with minimal suffering or failure, because that actually doesn't measure anything of worth, but a life that endures. Now, in James' terms, that is a life that knows how to wait well. A life full of advent, even in the face of suffering, says James. Now, the reason I've spent some time explaining that is because it's actually really, really important for understanding how he ends the letter. 
Because from verse 13 onwards, uh, there are some of the most uh, quoted words in James' letter, and they've been used in some of the most damaging ways you can imagine. <laughs> let me read them to you. If any one of you is in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So, so here are the words that help rather than hinder our waiting. There's an intercession, there's singing songs of praise, there's healing, there's reconciliation. And, and these words help a community of God's people to wait well, to endure well, to live a blessed life regardless of what happens to them. But some in our time have taken these as instructions here Uh, as a formula, a technique for how to get God to answer prayers for healing, guaranteed, you see. The prayer of faith will heal the sick person. And if healing is not instant, then obviously there's a lack in someone's faith or there's a secret sin that needs to be confessed in some way. Now, what is the pastoral effect of that? You start loading guilt and shame onto people who are already struggling because they're ill. Isn't it? If they're not healed, there and then, on the spot. And please don't think it doesn't happen in the church. It does. That's how we've used these words from James to our shame, I think. But no... We need to read James again and read him slowly, I think. He has just told us that a blessed, happy, approved life looks like the example of the prophets and Job, who through long-term waiting in the face of ongoing suffering, endured. And as we read the prophets and Job, what do we find them doing? They're keeping the argument about their suffering right up in God's face. That's what they're doing all the time. They keep on praying, but they're considered faithful because they keep on relating to God despite everything. Job says, though he slay me, though God slay me, yet I will love him. I'm still committed to this. Now that's endurance, isn't it? And James says that's what faith looks like. It doubts, it questions, it argues, it yells, it weeps, it struggles, it is furiously angry, but it keeps the relationship going with God. And so it endures. And then let's read verse 15 again slowly. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Do you hear the notes of forgiveness and resurrection there in that verse? Referring to our final healing, the end of all our waiting, the last Christmas when Jesus, the healer, comes to restore us to life forever. So what's going on here? that there are two things happening 
James is saying it is a regular duty of the life of the elders of any local church to be involved in a ministry of healing. They are to travel to the homes of the ill, to anoint them with oil and to ask God for healing. And and I know I'm getting old and cranky now, but if people who don't believe in healings, I've seen far too many of them. You know, get over yourselves. It happens, okay? This is what goes on. This is just the bread and butter of what we do as a church. It's simply a mark of the history of Christianity. In fact, it used to be a requirement before people could be ordained into the eldership of the church that they had a track record in healing prayer. Maybe they'll bring that back. But James knows that healing in this current world is only ever going to be in part, isn't it? He knows that even Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, died again. And at the end of all our waiting stands the answer to every right prayer for healing, the resurrection, we're healed for eternity. Now, one of our, one of our parishioners uh, taught me about this while she was dying. Some of you will remember Sheila Parkinson, and she was dying from an incurable cancer, uh, and she asked us as a church to pray for her healing, and we did, and she was given this unexpected, impossible delay in the cancer's progress. The cancer wasn't gone, uh, but she was made well enough to return to work and well enough certainly to deal with uh, relationships and, and other things. She was made well enough to set her house in order, which she went on to do. And eventually she returned to hospital for the last time and, and, and we were praying and, and, and she said about the prayers, either way I win, don't I? It was so wise. She saw what James was saying here. Whether I live or die, I win. Jesus can raise me from this sick bed now, but at some point he's going to have to raise me from the dead for eternity. Either way, I win. And I think that's why James finishes by writing about the greatest act of healing that we can offer anyone. It's there from verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Here's healing, to gently and without hypocrisy to turn others from sin, to steer each other back to truth, to do evangelism, to do mission is the greatest healing that we can offer. It's the greatest way we have of loving our neighbours as ourselves. And I think perhaps he mentions this at the last because this takes the greatest faith, the greatest endurance and effort of prayer uh, the longest kind of waiting to see this healing be begin or to be restored in people's lives. And when we think about our friends or, or, or our neighbours or our, our children or our colleagues or our, our partners or our, our relatives, we think, yeah, there's some long-term prayers that are needed there. Enduring prayer. And Advent means to endure. Advent means to wait for God to finish his work in our world and in ourselves. And James has been teaching us that it is in the time and the place of waiting, even in the face of suffering, where the growth occurs.
And we as a church can hinder each other from waiting with a wrong use of our words by grumbling and dishonesty. Or we can help each other to wait well with the right use of use of words by, by, by prayer and praise and healing, confession, reconciliation, by mission and evangelism. Now, I hate to shock you, but it's Christmas. I know. I, I work in a church, and I didn't quite realize it was Christmas next week. You know, like, that's what we've been getting ready for. It just doesn't feel quite right. And, and I hate to surprise you, but it's actually, we're coming up to the end of 2020. And at the end of this year, of all years, let's be generous to each other and give each other the word gifts that help our waiting together. And we will too will find that this walk with Jesus that we're on is what is blessed, is what is actually happy, is what is approved. And even our trials will give us a cause, a case for joy. Amen.